0: You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast.
1: Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 70 of the Common Descent Podcast. Welcome back. And in this episode, we will be discussing one of my favorite topics, convergent evolution. Ooh, this yeah. one's been a long time coming. It has. It's been on the list for a while. So convergent evolution, a lot of you have probably heard of before. It's a fairly common term, but it's a complicated one as well. So as, as commonplace as it seems to be, there's a lot of weirdness to it. The concept is this is when animals look like each other, even though they aren't related. Yes,
0: animals, plants, anything evolutionary, developing the same sort of thing... Yes. Separately.
1: Yeah, by themselves. Converging
0: on the same evolutionary... Uh, I was going to say endpoint, but solution is yes. A better... Yes, yes. A solution to a problem. The same feature. Yeah, so the classic example, uh, th- things like birds and bats and yeah. pterosaurs, each evolved wings, very similarly even though they all came from separate, non-flying ancestors.
1: And we'll discuss that example in more detail, because that is one of the classic examples. Indeed, indeed. This topic was also requested, so to shout out our requesters, Jonathan, Vrushali, and Martin, thanks for the topic idea. Thanks for a request, as always. Yeah. Now, before we jump into the topic, some quick announcements. Mm -hmm. We only have a couple. First and foremost, as usual, We have a Patreon. We sure do. And when you sign up on Patreon at a certain level, we'll shout your name out here on the podcast. So here goes. Welcome to Nick, Kenneth, and the Dread Pirate Rob. Welcome. (laughs) Oh,
0: patrons. (laughs) Thanks for joining us. Hey, patrons get all sorts of cool bonus
1: goodies. Absolutely. Bonus news, where we go over some extra news bits and bonus info about... Us working on the episodes.
0: Also, things like the ability to ask us questions. They do. Stick around at the end of this
1: episode, because we've got another patron question. Yes, we do. And our only other bit of announcement right now is that coming next month is the start of Spooky season, which means Spookulative Evolution, Spooky, is returning. Yes, year two. Absolutely. So keep an eye out for it. It'll be coming out every Saturday that month, so... October 5th will be your first episode. If you missed the last time, it was about us
0: taking the speculative evolution goggles to monsters. Yes, how
1: how could a monster actually evolve, or how could it achieve its monstrousness with natural means? Now, last time we talked about classic horror
0: monsters of film. Absolutely. Vampires, werewolves, fish people, and zombies. Shall we tease the topic The theme, do we want to give it away now? I
1: think so. I think it's time, since it's so close. All right, we're letting it out of the vault. Absolutely. This month's theme will be Monsters and Creatures of Greek Mythology. Ooh. Yeah, a long list to pull from, so you'll have to see which ones we picked. Yes, perhaps your favorites. Yes,
0: hopefully. It also occurs to me, another announcement we should make is that we recorded our paleo panel at DragonCon... Yes, we did. And sometime soon, we'll put that up for everybody to listen to as well.
1: Absolutely. So that will also be popping up at some point. That's when we get time to do it. It'll be popping up (laughs) when it's available for download. Yes. (laughs) Thank you to everybody who
0: supports us. Yes. And lets us find the time to do these kinds of things, (laughs) which we
1: much appreciate. And with our announcements out of the way, and before we get to our topic again, we have our news section. As always. For the news, every episode we like to cover just a little bit of the recent evolutionary paleontology news articles that have popped up and share them all with you. David, do you have something you'd like to share with us? I sure do. Actually, I'm going to start us with a bit of
0: news that caught my eye. I saw this headline and I said, hmm. (laughs) So the headline hinted at a rhino tooth. Mm -hmm. At almost 2 million years old, providing genetic information. Ooh. Now, the reason that that made me go, hmm, is because, if you'll recall from episode 34, when we talked about DNA, and probably also episode 23, uh, (laughs) ancient DNA is only supposed to go back so far. The oldest ancient DNA we've ever gotten is around 700,000 years old. Estimates suggest that it might go back a million, maybe million and a half, maybe two. So the thought of genetic material at 1.7 million years old struck me as a very extraordinary claim. That's yeah, pushing the envelope. And indeed, that's not what it is.
1: <laughs>
0: but it's also cool. <laughs> so, this is research by Enrico Capellini et al. in Nature. So you know it's a big deal. Or, you know, somebody thinks it's a big deal.
1: Uh, I, made, I made a silent nod. Yes, um, oh, nature. Mm, yes, mm, yes, 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 yes. yes. Mm.
0: And we'll link to an article in Smithsonian Magazine by Jason Daly. So, as I said, DNA only goes back so far in the fossil record, which means that we are lacking information about genetics back farther than about a million years, which is most of the fossil record. However, there is an up-and-coming realm of investigation Looking at ancient proteins. Proteins are more stable than DNA, and so they last longer, and there are techniques studying proteomics. Yeah, that's a cool word, which is the full complex of proteins that a cell will produce, in anthropology and criminology, and indeed paleontology. Now, a little biochemistry refresher DNA comes in chunks called codons Mm -hmm. that each code for a molecule called an amino acid. And the amino acids are strung together to make proteins. Yes. So if you're looking at proteins in the fossil record, if you can get the sequence of amino acids that make up the proteins, you can then infer the sequence of DNA that codes for those amino acids.
1: Yeah, it's like having the the reverse side of a mold. You know, it's yep. not the thing, but you can figure out what would have made that shape. Indeed, or at least you can get
0: close, which means with proteins, we can reconstruct DNA even when we don't have the DNA anymore. Collagen is a very popularly used tissue for these kinds of studies, and people have been able to sequence the protein in collagen going back to around 1.5 million years. Cool. Which is good. Here, this group of researchers was able to sequence the proteome of enamel,
1: Wow. Enamel
0: is one of the tissues that you find in your teeth. In fact, it is the most resilient tissue in the body. That's important. Yes. We'll mention why. In this case, the enamel that they used came off of a tooth of an animal called Stephanorhinus, which was a rhino that lived around 1.77 million years ago. This tooth came from an archaeological site in Georgia, not the U.S. Georgia, the Georgia over in Eurasia. And they were able to not only sequence the proteins, but reconstruct the genetic information. Wow. Which makes it the oldest reconstructed genetic information ever reported.
1: Well, so not the oldest DNA, but the oldest reconstructed yes. genetic code. Yep. Very cool.
0: Now that, uh, that going back to my, hmm, that's the kind of thing you'd be careful with your headlines about, internet. But still still a cool thing. Yes. Now, this is very exciting Because not only did this teach them things about rhinos, in this case, apparently Stephanorhinus, this type of rhino, is known to be closely related to a genus called Coelodonta, which you will know as the woolly rhinoceros. Cool. Yeah, which is pretty cool. Woolly rhinos, much like woolly mammoths, lived way up north in Europe, Asia, during uh, the Pleistocene. Yes. The the later parts of the, the, well, the, the Ice Age, and in this case, the later part of the Ice Age. This study looked at how those rhinos are related and found by reconstructing this information that Stephanorhinus is at least a couple different lineages and the woolly rhino appears to have evolved within the group. Oh, cool. So one of the species of Stephanorhinus is very closely related to the woolly rhino and the other one is the next group out, which is cool. Also makes Stephanorhinus
1: paraphyletic. Yeah. Which means that it's not a good name. Yep. Someone's going to come around and and split that name up probably someday. Uh, For more on that, episode 10, the tree of
0: life, how we classify (laughs) things. But even more exciting, I think, about this, and the reason that the headline is not Wooly Rhino Relatives, is that if this technique can be replicated elsewhere, that means that we can potentially get genetic information older than the DNA record can give us which is really cool, especially for people interested in, like, early human evolution, because the DNA doesn't take us back that far. But also, if we can get this information out of enamel, that's about the best case scenario you could hope for.
1: That's a really nice material to be carrying this
0: information. Like, getting DNA out of bone is cool, and collagen we have a lot of in the the, the recent fossil record, but tooth enamel? That's
1: Everywhere, And it's, as you said, resilient. It is yep. tough. It is the hardest part of your body. It's yep. what allows us to chew all of our stuff. So it can hang in there for quite a while. That's awesome. I love studies like this because this is when it feels the most like we're doing detective work to me. Yeah. Of I didn't <laughs> find the person's fingerprint, but I found the dust removed by the finger. Like I found what wasn't there. And yes. I love this kind of stuff when it comes <laughs> up in studies. It's also really cool. It's it's such a it's such a nice thing to be able to say, well no DNA does not go back that far. But what DNA made does sometimes, yep. And that can at least give us an We may not be able to say the exact CT uh, ordering of everything, right, right. But we can get an idea, and that's awesome. And the fact you related it to detective work, this is
0: actual detective yes. work because forensic mm-hmm. scientists use the same technique. So yeah, and it, the overlaps between paleontology and forensic
1: science are many, and it feels like increasing. As I was about to say, the line between those two is is blurring, especially when you get into like old forensics. Yeah, when they're looking at old crimes, at that point you're almost doing paleontology <laughs> you're doing you're doing archaeology yeah yeah you you're you doing going uh, true back. true i guess if, if it you're it doing was like, murders uh, i was gonna uh, you beat me too. i was gonna say if a
0: horse committed the crime then yes you're doing paleontology and you're a horse <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's very awesome indeed it is well my next news article does not deal with dna but it does deal with baby sea turtles okay and that's pretty awesome just i cause... hope it's not a crime scene with baby sea turtles <laughs> Well then you should probably do yours <laughs> <laughs> This episode's gonna, do, gonna get dark real <laughs> get quick. Real, real <laughs> dire. No, these are about baby sea turtle trackways. Oh. Yes. So this is this is a cute one. This is research by Martin Lockley et al. in the Quaternary Research. And the article we're linking to is is by Milan Soli at Smithsonian.com. So in South Africa's Cape South Coast, going back about a hundred thousand years ago. There are beaches, and on these beaches, at some point, some baby sea turtles were born. And as many of you probably already know, sea turtles bury their eggs on the beach. And the babies are left there. They hatch all at once, sometimes just within a nest, sometimes multiple nests. So that's just a fun fact. Not all sea turtles do the massive hatching. Some sea turtles just nest all year, and the nests just pop every now and then, they all scurry to the ocean. But they... Scurry down, and they leave very distinctive little pss- 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 pss tracks in the sand as they push themselves with their flippers.
0: Uh, yeah, I imagine those would be easy to distinguish from, like, crabs exactly. and, and, and other
1: animals walking when you're, on the beach. you're shoving yourself along the beach with oars, mm-hmm. uh, you make a distinctive pattern. You can actually identify adult sea turtle tracks by the pattern. Oh, that's cool. Uh, We had uh, signs at the aquarium that showed if it looks like... And they looked like tribal tattoos. If it looks like (laughs) this, it's a leatherback. It looks like this, it's a loggerhead. Da-da-da-da-da. Cool. So they leave those little tracks, and some of those tracks actually fossilized and preserved. And not just one case, actually a few, which is awesome, but also unexpected, because this is something that happens briefly. Like, those sea turtles aren't walking around the beach they're running from nest to water. They're probably on the beach for less than 10 minutes. And in that time of them leaving those tracks and before those tracks got washed away or destroyed, it was preserved. So this is a really amazing little snapshot that they were able to find. And it told them some cool things about what sea turtles were there and how the sea turtles around Africa have changed a little bit. So in the first site, they found about seven roughly parallel paths pointing southward toward the ocean. The reason they were able to tell it was sea turtles was one, the pattern, but also the parallel paths is key because it suggests that they were all coming from the same direction or basically the exact same direction. So it suggests that they were all moving from one spot toward the ocean, which supports baby sea turtles. Now this is the first site of a few that have been found, including this first site. three more trackways have been found with baby sea turtle tracks wow two were right nearby just a few kilometers from the first one but another one was uh, 62 miles away 100 kilometers wow farther so they actually have a nice little spread all still within the the south coast and they were able to identify that there were multiple turtle species uh shown in these tracks so they had not just the same kind of turtle they had one that was showing an alternating gate so a back and forth You know, basically they can either do a butterfly crawl, like swimming, where they're moving both arms, or they can do one and then the other. One had an alternating gait, and that was left behind by some kind of relative of the loggerhead, because it matches those tracks most closely. So if they're still walking the same, something related to the loggerhead. And then wider tracks seem to be more consistent with leatherbacks.
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: So you got two cool turtles walking on these beaches. Now, these specific tracks for these ancient turtles had not been described before, so they got named in this study. Oh, so Ichnotaxa. The loggerhead, some kind of cousin, was named Australochilichnus, and the leatherback relative was Marine Yeah, so
0: these are, as we've discussed before, footprints, trackways, get their own names. Yeah.
1: Just like ancient species do. Yes, and so maybe someday... If we're ridiculously lucky, we might find a fossil (laughs) that we can associate with it. But most likely, these names will match with these tracks, and this will be how they're identified. Now, one of the interesting things this showed the researchers is that today, loggerheads and leatherbacks do nest along Africa's coastlines. uh, So the cousins of whatever left these tracks. But they don't nest uh, on the south coast. They nest on the northeastern. So they have shifted, or at least... These kinds of turtles have shifted, right, right, and most likely the researchers surmise that's going that is going to be due to climate change, but also human hunting. Yeah, turtle nests are a huge target for many people who who uh, make those coastlines their home because it's a great source of protein and eggs. Yeah, and you get a whole bunch of them in the same place. Yeah, you literally just dig it up and fill a basket. And there's no mom there to protect them. Yeah. So they have shifted behavior within the last 100,000 years.
0: What a cool find. Yeah. It is very rare that a paleontological study gets to be cute. Yes. Yes. I love it. Also, I love the fact that a baby sea turtle is only in a position to leave trackways for about 10 minutes of its life. Yeah. And here at a few different sites, the fossil record caught it.
1: And they think that what might have allowed them to be preserved is that as they tracked across the damp beach sand, dry sand got blown across it Mm -hmm. and filled it in, uh, preserving it but not just becoming more sand. Right, right, right.
0: Many years ago, I took a visit to a beach in Georgia, I believe it was, and my friend Steve, you know Steve, Steve and I were walking along the beach and we came across this like mound of sand this big pile of sand Mm -hmm. that the 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 beach folks had put sticks around and we realized oh this is probably a sea turtle nest that they haven't flagged off yet like they probably just noticed it put a bunch of sticks around it and it will be coming back to like close it off and then we looked to the side of the the nest and saw this big track (laughs) that looked like a like like a tractor had gone through but it was a adult sea turtle drag track up to the nest and then another one going away from the nest up to where you could see the high tide line was. Yeah, And it was so cool. The idea of finding that for baby sea turtles 100,000 years old. What a neat
1: find. Yeah, I mean, because all it would take is the normal weather patterns of that day to do away with those tracks. Oh, yeah. And we got them. Yeah. It's pretty cool.
0: Very cool. Well, you know what we don't talk enough about on this podcast? What? Snakes. Mm, I disagree. I'm going to talk about snake news. Now, this is not fossil, but it is cool new snake information and ties into this episode topic of convergent evolution.
1: I'll allow it then.
0: This is a new study about a snake that breathes through its skull. Okay. But not like the normal way we all breathe through our skulls. (laughs) I was
1: about to say, that's not a very compelling pitch. (laughs) Just do, just do.
0: Listen to all these cool things these snakes can do.
1: (laughs) It can breathe, see, and eat through its skull. All through its skull.
0: (gasps) This is research by Alessandro Palsi et al. in Royal Society Open Science, and we'll link to an article in The Conversation, written by two of the authors, uh, Alessandro Palsi and Kate Sanders. Sea snakes are cool. Yes, they are. What's your next news? No. (laughs) This study focused on Hydrophus cyanocinctus, the annulated sea snake. Sea snakes have all sorts of cool adaptations for living in the water. They have paddle tails and they have uh, the, some of them have the ability to breathe through their skin. Ah, That's nice. Amphibian style. They can absorb oxygen through the skin. More on that in a second. This one is a sea snake that lives in Australian and Asian coastal waters. They grow to about three meters long. So wow. around ten feet. So that's a good sized snake. Yeah, that is. The researchers noticed while studying these snakes an odd hole in the roof of the skull. Now, scientifically, it's a foramen. As I was a, say, it's not an accident. A gap in the skull in multiple specimens. So no, not just an accident. (laughs) Now, at first, and some of you may be thinking this, a hole in the middle of the roof of the skull sounds like a pineal gland. Yes. This is something we see in a lot of lizards. The pineal gland or the pineal gland, there's this hole on the top of the head, and inside is this pineal gland that is an organ that is sensitive to light. So some animals are able to detect changes in light above their head through this organ. Lots of lizards have this, but it is not known in snakes. So the researchers thought, okay, well, what's this hole about then? So they got some specimens from Vietnam, did some micro CT scanning and histology work, so tissue investigation, and found that it is not a pineal organ. It's not an eye. It's not, th- the pineal gland is not present, but instead a large blood vessel flows through this hole. Sometimes two large blood vessels. And after flowing through the hole, the blood vessel branches into a complex network of veins and sinuses under the skin of the forehead and snout. The blood vessels are very large, and they converge into one vessel that goes into the brain. So what it appears they are there to do is the same thing, That blood vessels in the skin of some snee snakes are doing is by having a low oxygen concentration in the blood vessel, forcing oxygen to diffuse from the seawater into the blood, thus collecting oxygen at the roof of the skull and sending it directly to the brain. Wow. These are snakes with a respiratory organ system on the top of their head.
1: Wow.
0: And in fact, they point out that this might actually go hand in hand with the skin breathing mechanics, because in order for oxygen to be absorbed from the water to the blood, the blood has to start out low in oxygen. That's how chemistry works, as things go from high concentration to low concentration, which means that the arteries flowing through that skin have to be low in oxygen, which is good because it creates diffusion, but it also means that you're intentionally keeping your blood vessels low in oxygen, which can also be dangerous because if you're not getting that diffusion, it can limit how much oxygen you're getting to the brain and the brain's real important. Mm-hmm. needs oxygen. So this setup on the head might serve as an extra system specifically to fuel the brain with oxygen so that the, the snake can do its skin breathing thing all across the other parts of the body. Nice. The two things that are super cool about this, even beyond just the fact that it exists, are number one, this is not seen in any other snakes. So far, this is the only species, the annulated sea snake, that is known to have this. Cool. And two, that system that we just described is pretty much how gills work. A bunch of blood vessels absorbing oxygen and then sending them in, uh, in this case to the brain, that's what gills do. This is a snake that has its own version of gills on top
1: of its head. That's really pretty awesome. I love the setup because it is specific life support just for the brain. Like yep I this I need this organ to survive in case we're ever in low oxygen above everything else. So I'm gonna put a <laughs> I'm gonna put a scuba suit on it. <laughs> it's like if we attach oxygen tanks just to our brain. Just in case our big ones went out. And i that's really interesting. That's really cool. This paper is also open, uh, open
0: access, which means anyone can look at it. There are a couple of cool images in there of Woo-hoo. the scans that they lit of the skull of the heads of the snake. And as always, we will put links up to these uh, reports in the blog post. So be sure
1: to check it out. Yeah, very nice. Gilled snakes, Gilt coming up snakes, kind of coming up. I say, right? Yeah, there. Give it a few years. This is years. our teaser for fully marine snakes. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's, t- it's been
0: hundred and fifty million years in the making. <laughs> Finally, we'll take over the the, the 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 one of the last bastions. Actual sea serpents. Actual sea serpents.
1: That's pretty awesome. This will be important, I'm sure, for a spooky episode someday. <laughs> yep. Yep. <yeah. laughs> Pocketing that. Yep. Well, my last bit of news also has to do with a feature on top of an animal's head. A snake? No. Oh. Dinosaurs. Oh. Uh, I mean, you know, still pretty okay. Uh, dinosaurs, whatever. <laughs> is it at least a cool dinosaur? Yeah, theropods. All right. Yeah. Okay, cool, cool. So, this is research looking at special divots on the top of theropods' skulls. Now, theropods are the two legged, mostly predatory dinosaurs T Rex, mm-hmm. Stromiosaurs, Deinodocus. Etc. Etc. And this new research for these divots seems to have overturned the old idea for them and presented some new potential uses. Now, this is research by Casey Holliday in the anatomical record. Cool. We met him.
0: Yeah. He was in our uh,
1: SciFest episode a year ago, almost exactly. And the article we're linking to is by John Pickrell in National Geographic. So on the skulls of these mostly predatory dinosaurs there are a couple of holes called the dorsal temporal fenestra now fenestra is fancy word for hole but yep. window actually in latin true yes yeah. <laughs> so these are dorsal so on the top temporal your 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 temple your your uh yeah. temple region temple-ish area yeah so on top of the head in that kind of area holes that Originally, were thought to be places for muscle attachment. Theropods are typically predators, so many of them have notably strong bites, and this this seemed like a hole in one answer that it was muscle attachment, especially Hey-oh. because the depressions are right in front of the major jaw muscle openings in uh, the dinosaur skulls, but also modern birds as well. So right, right. So an extension, an area for extension yes. of muscles. This new research says nah. Oh, probably not. Uh, The first bit of information that says it's probably not that is just because it's not really a logical position for the muscles to attach from. Hmm. If the muscle were to attach there, it would have to come up from the jaw, take a 90 degree turn, and then snake along the roof of the skull to attach to that spot. So it just doesn't seem like it's a good... Anchorage point for mechanical use. Interesting. Also, the surface of the bone there does not suggest that muscle or tendons were attaching. It's too smooth. Mm. Usually there's muscle scarring, rough patches, when muscle attaches the bone, and this doesn't show that. So they took a look at other animals to figure out who else has these divots and what are they using them for. And they looked at a number of animals, including modern alligators and birds. Cool. And they found the divots and... In them, they noticed that they actually had a packet of blood vessels and fat sitting in the divots. This could very likely be a form of heat regulation, like little radiators on top of the head, to get rid of heat when your brain's getting too hot, but also to draw in heat if you're needing to warm up. So, to see if that made sense, they did something awesome. They used thermal cameras and went to the St. Augustine Alligator Farm in Florida, and they thermo camera the alligators. Oh, cool. And sure enough, they saw that on the alligator's skull, the region of, with these fatty blood vessel patches were often either re- relative to the rest of the body, warmer or cooler, depending on the time of the day, and whether the gator was needing to cool down or heat up. Wow. So it's either... a uh- A pair of ice packs? Yes. Or it's
0: a pair of heat packs? Yes. Depending on what you need. Absolutely. (gasps) That's awesome.
1: And so this could be what the theropods were using it for, which also makes sense, especially for the big theropods, Mm -hmm. because we've mentioned this before, but heat regulation is a huge challenge for big animals. The bigger you are, the harder it is to cool off because you retain heat more easily. Yes. Especially... If these big dinosaurs are endothermic, warm-blooded, Yep. if they're if they're maintaining their own heat, then it's gonna be really hard to cool down. So these could help them maintain a healthy temperature in the skull, which is important for your brain. Once again, there's a great quote in the article that said. You, you can uncook a brain just as much as you can uncook an egg. <laughs> <laughs> you only get once. Yeah, you can't really turn that <laughs> dial back.
0: This must explain why I've been seeing that Brian Eng artwork bouncing around the internet of the dinosaur heads
1: as though viewed through a thermal camera. Yes, with the two yeah. dinosuchus popping up <laughs> to look at. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what that is.
0: I like that this is also something we talked about in the last episode on Ankylosaurs, About how their nasal passages Mm -hmm. were built to do this same thing. Absolutely. To be air conditioning or heating for the skull, which as you to protect the brain in a big animal. Yeah, it's
1: your brain is the most important organ. Like your heart, you need all of your organs for the most part. (laughs) But without the brain, none of them do much. And so you've got multiple
0: strategies to solving the same problem.
1: Yes. Yes. They also did point out that this could have other uses. For instance, there could be a display aspect if you're able to flush blood and pale or darken two patches on your skull, uh, which you know certain lizards do by darkening their skin or, or you know flushing blood to certain places. Yeah. So there could be other uses for this, but the thermal regulation seems to be a very likely answer for why these holes are there. And with that... We wrap up the news. That's the news. So now we will jump into our topic of convergent evolution to talk about how life copies each other because they're all in original (laughs) (laughs) after these messages. Let's learn. So convergent evolution is a concept that almost every intro biology class touches on, because it should, because this is a very interesting and common phenomenon that happens in evolution. The basics of it, convergent evolution is when two unrelated organisms arrive at a similar feature or answer to a survival challenge without any connection to one another. They are not interbreeding. They are not pulling from a similar ancestor. They are just arriving at the same solution on their own evolutionary path.
0: And it's important to note that convergent evolution isn't a type of evolution. It's not like a particular method of evolution. It's not, I'm going to evolve convergently today. No, it's just a thing that happens because of the diversity of evolutionary lineages
1: absolutely and typically it's because your organisms are occupying similar habitats or similar niches so they are living similar lifestyles or living in similar conditions and therefore the pressures of natural selection that they're experiencing are similar or almost identical
0: I know we're going to have a bunch of cool examples later yes. on. Should we throw out some favorites now to give people an idea of what we're talking about? Absolutely. Why don't you start? Oh, sure. Well, a thing that comes to my mind, for example, I, you know, just the way that I think, you know, uh, limblessness. Yeah. The, the, the notion of an organism that has completely lost its legs has happened a bunch of times in lizards, one of which gave rise to snakes. Mm-hmm. Also, there's a group of amphibians called Sicilians. Yep which started out ancestrally legged and lost all of their limbs. Yes. That's several different groups of legged animals completely independently evolving towards limblessness. Coming to the same conclusion that being legless is useful for certain lifestyles. And while I'm being biased towards the things we like, that crocodilian body plan is
1: also something... Oh, yeah. Oh, don't worry. <laughs> Speaking of things we don't mention often enough, there's a section later on. <laughs> oh, I believe that there is. We also
0: we've talked about on the podcast um evolution to aquatic lifestyle. Yes, right? Absolutely. Cetaceans, whales and dolphins uh, are the product of that of that evolutionary pathway as are pinnipeds, yep. Your seals, sea lions and walruses, as are sea snakes. Yep. several groups of
1: organisms that have evolved similar body shapes, not so much the sea snakes, but the other ones. But, I mean, almost every single one has formed a paddle somewhere on their body. This is true. So, like, similar lifestyles, but similar... It may just be a similar structure. Maybe the whole animal doesn't look the same. Maybe it's just we all develop the same tool for the same kind of job. One of my favorites we mentioned in our eyes episode is cephalopod and human eyes. Yes. are if you held up diagrams of them next to each other, which you can look up online, so you don't even need to picture it in your mind, (laughs) they are almost indistinguishable, except for a couple of structural details. And that's pretty amazing, especially considering that that's not even another vertebrate. Right. That's an (laughs) invertebrate. And I like that, the, the, the idea that
0: sometimes convergence can be very different in the makeup. So like, A fish's fin and a dolphin's flipper are the same shape. But if you look inside of that at what it's made of and what's inside, they are totally different. But you can also get convergence that is, like the the eyes example you just gave, almost the exact same thing Mm -hmm.
1: developed totally independently. Absolutely. And there's a term for these structures. Go on. These are known as analogous structures. Now, I want to define this term because there's another very similar term that it could be easy to confuse. So analogous structures are exactly what we just described. Structures that are structurally the same or identical or very similar to one another, but not related to each other. There's no evolutionary family connection, or at least no recent common ancestor. While homologous structures, very similar. They are structures that look the same, but do to evolutionary descendants. I have fur just like my dog because we come from furred ancestors. Yeah. But the furry texture on a pterosaur or yes. a dinosaur
0: is made of a different structure evolved from different ancestors and is thus analogous. Same basic structure. Yes. Evolved two separate times versus hair mammalian hair and fur which evolved once and was inherited by many many different groups
1: absolutely so so analogous structures is what we're talking about that's what the result of convergent evolution ends up being and another term you'll see circling convergent evolution is homoplasty which is when structures are gained or lost multiple times within separate lineages and so the loss of limbs multiple times across many lineages right. is a homoplastic
0: trait. We talked about that in, actually, episode 53, the baculum episode. Yep. <laughs> about how bacula have kind of seemed to have come and gone many times over the
1: course of mammalian evolution. Absolutely. Now, one of my favorite things about convergent evolution is that it is a very gray area oftentimes. Yes. There are some features that are both analogous and homologous, depending on which part of it you're looking at. What? What? The wing example you gave earlier, pterosaur, bird, and bat wings, which are all forearms turned into flight organs. Front arms. It's two arms, but four, F-O-R-E, arms. (laughs) Yeah, four arms. The front arms, the upper limbs, have been turned into wings. The skeletal infrastructure of those wings are homologous in their origin. They're all based off of an ancient front arm. But the type of wing is analogous. One big membrane, lots of little membranes, feathers. Those are the analogous part. So you had the earliest vertebrates have bones. Yes. The earliest
0: tetrapods have front limbs. The bones that make up the wings of pterosaurs, birds, and bats are those same bones. Yep. Which they all inherited from their sa- the same ancestors, thus are homologous. Yep. But the way they've shaped them, the fact that Birds evolved a wing shape using feathers, and bats evolved it using web flesh between the fingers, and pterosaurs did it with the membrane attached to one finger, same shape,
1: analogously. Exactly. So you can have overlap, and that is part of the reason that this topic can get confusing Mm -hmm. to study, because there's not always a clear line between when is it analogous and when is it homologous and also how far back do we need the common ancestor to be or how recently do we need it to be for it to count for one or the other? So there, there's not clear cut lines for all of
0: it. I also am really excited that we can probably reference every single other episode of this podcast. Right. While discussing this topic. Evolution of flight was episode six. Yep. We mentioned <laughs> whales and dolphins, episode 41. I'm going to see how many I can do. Oh, yes, please do. I'm not going
1: to be obnoxious about it, but I'm going to do Just it a Just a bunch. little bit. I'll be a little obnoxious. <laughs> <laughs> That's episode 59. So another parallel to convergent evolution is parallel evolution. I see what you did there. Ah, it's subtlety. <laughs> so while convergence is two things unrelated becoming similar... Parallel evolution can be the same thing. The difference is that in convergent evolution, it is usually specified that the ancestors of the of whatever convergent organisms you're looking at did not look like each other. Right. Two different organisms, you know, so a, a turtle and a squirrel, millions of years of evolution, then suddenly become very similar looking turtle-squirrel things. Right. Or to use, uh, uh,
0: you know... Pull examples from the fossil record. Mm -hmm. The idea that a sea lion and a dolphin have very similar shapes. Yes. Even though one evolved from those sort of cow slash sheep slash wolf-like walking mammals and the other evolved from something more weasel-like. Yes. They converged on the same body
1: plan, but they started out very different. So that's convergence. Parallel evolution is that two still unrelated. So this is not we are cousins still unrelated but we have kept being similar in shape as our ancestors and de- and their descendants and their descendants evolved so two similar looking organisms continue to evolve down the same path and continue to be similar looking so this could be uh, and
0: let me know if this is if mm. I'm understanding you correctly we make the assumption that bats may have started as gliding, Small gliding mammals that developed flight into bats. Mm -hmm. And some have suggested that pterosaurs may have started as small gliding reptiles that developed flight into pterosaurs, Mm -hmm. that your ancestors were very similar, and then you evolved down a similar
1: pathway. Your ancestors are similar. Your descendants are similar. Still not because you're related, just because those body plans or designs are good ideas. So
0: parallel evolution, you're it's not just a two points that are very similar, it's
1: two lines that are yes, very similar. Exactly. Yeah. So and once again, these sometimes are hard to tell apart because the end result is the same. Right, right. Like if you just have the descendants to look at, it's hard to know whether it was parallel or convergent evolution that led to that without having their history. Now, the common version of evolution we typically think of is divergent, which is similar things becoming different. These are the ones working opposite or kind of just off to the side from that.
0: And usually it'll be both, right? Your your dolphins and everybody... All, all mammals started as an ancestral type of mammal, yeah. which diverged into your whale ancestors and weasel-like animals, and then converged. certain lineages converged into the sea lion dolphin shape.
1: Exactly. So this is, like you said, this isn't a type of evolution. These are things that happen... Via the process and during the process of evolution. One of the most cited examples of parallel evolution is actually placental and marsupial mammals. Oh. Because almost anytime you've looked up, if you just go look up, you know, cool marsupials, there will be some mention of marsupials that look oddly like placental versions what they often will call the true thing, which is... (laughs) Which is very... Because we're placentals. Exactly. (laughs) You know, true wolves, and then marsupial wolves, and true moles, and marsupials... Okay, let's calm down. (laughs) So marsupials and placentals became isolated when Pangea started to break up roughly 100 million years ago, and started to become isolated during that time, so since that time they've basically been evolving on their own. Especially Australia, it's just been them doing their thing. And yet, we've seen very similar mammal shapes pop up in both the placental and marsupial groups. The Tasmanian, uh, the, the thylacine, the Tasmanian tiger, is really similar to a wolf or coyote yeah, oh. in shape. Even when you just look at the bones next to each other. You also have gliders on both sides for, like, flying squirrels and gliding possums. You also get things like my favorite, which is the placental mole and the marsupial mole. Yep. Which look, (laughs) it looks just like a a color uh, uh, palette. Yeah, it's it's an alternate skin. Yeah, it's just a golden version of the normal (laughs) thing. Uh, But you also have very rodent-like marsupials. And even very cat-like marsupials, and so on and so forth. So these are two groups of mammals that have reached many of the same mammal conclusions. One of my favorite things to do when I was teaching uh, comparative
0: anatomy as a TA is I would bring out the koala skull, yeah, and see if people could guess what it is. Because if you've seen a rodent, like a big ro- like a, a beaver or a oh, capybara, yes. oh my goodness, you know koala skulls, it is very easy. To be confused or in my case it's very easy to trick students <laughs> it's very
1: easy to confuse yes <laughs> for you know for educational reasons yeah absolutely <laughs> it's morale boosting for the ta yeah but it's absolutely true they have very similar shapes because they're using their skull in a very similar way and that's what convergence does the essence of convergence it's it's very much the same idea of i could have you make a hammer out of lots of different materials. We've made rock hammers. We've made metal hammers. There are places that use hammers that are just a heavy block of wood because I'm not naming to hammer a ha- nail. Like same kind of tool, different process of making it. And all these different all these similar tools could have completely different developmental paths too. does mm-hmm. Doesn't mean I had to go through the same steps. I could have gone a, I could have come in it from the left. David could have come in from the right and we both could still reach a similar conclusion. And I'm sure if there are any historians in our audience
0: base, I'm sure you can think of tons of examples of different cultures yes. coming up with the same things, coming up with the same uh, solutions, developing very similar tools. I
1: love seeing multicultural versions of the same tool mm-hmm. to see how it developed by itself all over the world, and they're all basically the same, but also different. And I love it. So speaking of just cool examples, now that we know what Convergent Evolution is, let's dive in a little bit and look at some of the weird, cool examples that have popped up. There are, of course, too many to mention. Get your Google search ready. Yes, we'll have lots of links, promise, because the blog post will be full (laughs) of them. So one that I knew you would appreciate... Oh, boy. ...is one that... To me, I think it's overlooked all the time for how ridiculously convergent it is just because it's so mundane. Venom. Oh, yes. Venom is hugely convergent across lots of different animals and plants, arguably, for the ones that actually sting (laughs) you. But like things that inject you with a toxin have evolved multiple times. The stingers on a jellyfish have nothing to do with the things in a snake. Or the abdomen, the abdominal stinger of a wasp, and so these have all popped up separately. Even within snakes, they've evolved venom multiple times. Different types of
0: venoms will pop up, and that's one of those. And and this will happen many times in this episode, mm-hmm. where there is sometimes it's hard to draw the difference between. All right, they've oh they've evolved venoms, but they're using the same proteins to do it, and they're all related. And so, is it convergent, yeah. or is it... And the reason that I bring that up is because the development of snake venoms has been a much debated... I assume. And venoms in a, in, in squamates yes. and lizards in general has been much discussed. But absolutely, venom... Because all it takes, I say, flippantly yep. describing it as being simple, is to get some enzymes that are already doing cool stuff in your body... And put them in a place where you can stick them into something else. Yeah. Put them them in a different
1: place in your body and then put them into something else.
0: So like a lot of snake venom proteins are, for example, digestive enzymes. Yes. Or if it's neurotoxin, it's the things that are the the proteins you already have to control your own nervous system that now you're concentrating and sending over to someone else's body to control their nervous system. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh, these are really handy for when I need to 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 stop my blood from bleeding out. It's a coagulant. Well, if I stick it in that person who's not bleeding, they're just going to start, you know, dying, which is what I want my venom to do. <laughs> which is what I was going for. <laughs> so yeah, like using already having similar things and then... Many, many times coming up, evolving Mm -hmm. strategies for using them antagonistically. And
1: your point that it's hard to tell sometimes. We could look at, you know, squamate venoms with lizards and snakes and say, oh, convergent evolution. But all it takes is for us to find one fossil that seems to be ancestral and venomous. (laughs) And then go, oh, well, evidently maybe it's something... That has more of a
0: connection than we thought. And indeed, that happened with molecular studies, and that was the whole part of the whole Toxicophora thing. Mm -hmm. Go check out our friends on the Squamates podcast. They did a whole episode about the venom relatedness of
1: lizards and snakes. They did a really good job. Check it out. Nice. Another cool one that I wanted to mention was echolocation.
0: Yeah, hey, we talked about that
1: in both episodes 41 and 59. Yes, we did. And we mentioned part of this, but also we didn't really mention the fact that bats and whales aren't the only ones to echolocate. Go on. There are other echolocators, not quite as fancy as bats and whales. <laughs> That's why we use them as examples. But there are types of shrews yeah. that are known to click, types of tenrecs, which are, are very shrew-like animals as well, but they... that are able to make mouth clicks. And it doesn't seem like they're using it to hunt. They're using it to navigate. So it's very close range just to see what's around me. But it is a type of echolocation. I'm using echoes to locate my environment. Cool. Birds as well. Swiftlets are the famous one. They're cave-dwelling nocturnal birds. Mm -hmm. Sound familiar? (laughs) (laughs) So these are birds that are convergent with bats. They live in caves, they hunt at night, and they use little high-pitched chirps to navigate to their nest. They can actually find their individual nests on the cave wall in perpetual darkness with echolocation. So cool stuff like that. Now, the next part we mentioned uh, when we discussed these animals before, but I, I would have to mention it again just to remind everyone for how deep this convergence can go sometimes, is that whales and bats not only share echolocation, they share similar genetics. Yep. <laughs> And this, this is a part of convergent evolution that can be somewhat debated as to, is genetic evolution convergent as well? Does natural selection select for convergent genes? And from what I was able to see with the research, the answer is... Indeed. So it, it seems like there's some evidence <laughs> for it, but also not always evidence for it. Right. But at least in whales and bats, they have... At least 200 regions of their their genome, their genetic code, that are extremely similar. Wow. And many of these code for hearing. Now, how many of them code for echolocation is yet to be determined and will be difficult to determine. Right. But it seems to suggest that genetic or convergent molecular evolution is more common than we might think.
0: That's like finding two cultures that both... Independently developed cars, yes. and then learning that they're using the exact same
1: alloys, yeah, yeah, like it, for the materials. It's like meeting each other and then being able to switch the batteries, yeah, and, and, <laughs> and then it works. It, and it runs. <laughs> That's exactly That's super neat. So convergent evolution can get real specific, and also do it with really weird stuff. Electrical organs and electroreception in fish is a really cool one. Multiple fish have evolved techniques to use electricity to either sense, hunt, or defend themselves, or sometimes all three. Uh, there are two kinds of fish that use electro-reception that are just not sensing electricity like sharks, and but just using electricity to sense their environment. So it's like echolocation, but you're using an electrical field to map out what's around you and look for prey. Two of the common ones are elephant fish and knife fish. Elephant fish, native to Africa, knife fish, native to South America, both produce electrical fields to hunt and navigate throughout their environment. And they don't even look the same. (laughs) Like, this is also one of the weird things about convergence is sometimes you can't even see that two animals are convergent until you look beneath the skin or are able to see behavior that's convergent. Elephant fish are called elephant fish because they have a weird trunk thing off their face. It looks Hmm. like... A hose attachment for a vacuum cleaner? It's weird. <laughs> and then the knife fish are the cool, slender fish that you'll see in aquariums every now and then with a long fin along the belly that can just f- go in, drive and reverse Im- immediately and the fin just alternates its undulation to do that. Cool animals. Both of those use it for electroreception, but you also have more than one shocking fish. Yeah, that's <laughs> so electric eel style. Yes, the electric eel is the one everyone knows about, which, first off, not an eel. Well. And it's also freshwater, so if you ever see an eel in a saltwater aquarium, no, it's not the electric eel. Hmm. That is an answer to everyone who ever visits an aquarium. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> it's I guarantee if you're looking at electric eel, they'll let you know cuz the signage is going to be crazy. <laughs> It'll have that dangerous high voltage. Yes, because these can kill you. <laughs> electric eels are South American Amazonian freshwater fish. And they are able to produce huge amounts of electricity up to 600 volts and they use it to hunt their prey. So they deliver a a, a shocking bite. And stun and often just outright kill their prey. But it is powerful enough to kill animals up to the size of a grown human. So, powerful shocks, powerful animal. But lesser known are the electric rays. Types of stingrays, cousins of the stingrays more accurately, because I don't actually know that they have stingers. But they have very similar banks of muscle like the electric eel that can produce high-voltage shocks not as high as the eel uh they're not quite they're 45 volts but they do lots of little pulses so they can do 400 rapid pulses wow and then create a long-term shock and they use it for defense and hunting just like the eel their electricity though is not exactly the same because it produces it differently because one's in salt water and one's in fresh water oh that's fun right the eel has a way to generate electricity that would only work in freshwater. If it went to saltwater, it would actually shock itself. Wow. Because it would con- it would move the current too well. So, convergent things aren't always identical. There's often caveats, but the fact that two different aquatic animals went <laughs> what if we electrocuted stuff? <laughs> that's fascinating. Yeah, like that's a that is a super weird evolutionary trait and it's evolved more than twice because there's a lot of electric rays. But yeah. it's evolved in two different major groups. To bring
0: some, to, to, to step away from our animal centrism for just a second. Yes. Uh, plants do this a lot as well. Absolutely they do. As far as I'm aware, trees are something that has evolved many times. The shape of a tree mm-hmm. is something that mm-hmm. has shown up in many groups. Being tall. Grasses yeah. is a shape that has shown up many times. I was recently learning about banana plants, Mm -hmm. which are tree-shaped plants that are not trees. (laughs) Yes. They don't have wood. Oh, that's cool. A banana plant. So a tree, like the thing about trees is that they have wood that allows them to be structurally powerful enough to stand up really tall. Banana plants achieve the same thing with what's called a pseudo stem (laughs) which is a cylinder of compacted leaf tissue it's not even a real stem not even a real stem and then the real stem grows up through the middle of it
1: interesting
0: and yet the tallest banana plants in the world are like 30 to 40 feet tall so they do they're doing the tree thing yes with a totally different strategy For
1: how to become tree-sized, you also get convergent things with plants in very similar environments. So, like environment-specific stuff, cacti in the New World, North Americas, North and South Americas, and African euphorbias are, or spurges as they're also known, Mm -hmm. are very similar succulent, water storage, prickly desert plants that have nothing to do with one another. (laughs) So it's. The you know I'm going to say the cacti, even though that's specifically this one, but right, what right. we all think of as cactus has evolved more than once
0: now at this point, I'm sure our listeners have thought of uh, between all of you tons more examples, oh yeah, which we don't have time to go over nope, so hey send us your tell us your favorite examples yes. of convergent
1: evolution, please send that down because there's there's so many, and a lot of them are just uh uh you know what would often be called trends. So like big flightless birds on islands yep. is one of those. Episode you know, four. The Rhea and the elephant bird and the emus and uh, stuff like that. Those are another great example. So sometimes if you notice a trend in evolution, that's also technically a version of convergence. Yeah, If it ends up doing the same kind of stuff or forming the same kind of features. And other cool examples are also things like lifestyles. Use sociality. Yes. Has evolved multiple times, not just in insects, but in things like the naked mole rats. So living in hives with a caste system. Yes, a super organism where every individual organism works for the benefit of the whole group. So like sometimes it's not something on the surface or even in their shape or even in their biology, but in their behavior. And if we want to get real
0: basic herbivory. Herbivory, absolutely. Of, and, and carnivory, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Like Eating plants is a strategy that has evolved over and over and over and
1: over again. Well, in being shaped like a plant. We see very similar convergences with plant-eating organisms a lot of time. They tip, they get big of often. You get flat teeth because now you have to eat tough stuff. And you typically get a big belly. Yep. And those are herbivore <laughs> convergences. And that's... I love that. I love... That when you look for those trends and you start looking at it from this point of view, it gives it a new light. But like we said, there's a million examples. So if you think of one that we missed the best one, and I'm sure we did. Yeah, probably. Send it to us. Share it, and we'd love to hear what your favorite convergence is.
0: Tell us on Twitter or Facebook or on Patreon, and we'll just start a list on our social media. Everyone just starts sending them our way.
1: Absolutely. Now, I do want to address one thing. Uh, Because we're paleontologists. We sure are. And this is mostly a paleontology podcast. Uh, I've only mentioned like one fossil. That's true. So after the break, let's talk about those convergence in the fossil record.
0: So, you know, I said earlier I was going to mention our other episodes. And, Mm -hmm. like, snakes episode three, grasses episode 38. I'm missing a whole bunch.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to to look down the list. It's hard to do it real time. We've
0: done a a bunch of fish talk. We did one on sharks in 48. Yeah, it was 48. (laughs) Placoderms in 29. I'm not going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) It's too much.
1: So, fossil convergence. Yeah. Fossil convergence is an interesting topic because... You can compare fossil organisms to modern ones, but also, you can find convergences between equally extinct taxa. Fossils are also extremely important for telling us about parallel evolution, because the only way I can really learn about your evolutionary history is to look into your fossil record. But there's actually a lot of examples of convergence in the fossil record, which should not be surprising, because convergent evolution is strangely common. Yeah, it's a a, a wide, overarching pattern. And it's something that's been going on since things have been evolving, as far as we can tell. Since there's been things to converge to, I guess. Yes. (laughs) So there are lots of great examples. The first one I'll start off with was one of our most recent topics, Ankylosaurs. Hey, episode 69. Yeah, Ankylosaurs and their tail weaponry have been compared very often to the similar tail clubs of glyptodonts, the armored mammals. Yeah, very
0: armadillo-like, but big. Yeah, like, look like they're carrying an igloo on their back. Always compared
1: to Volkswagen Beetles for some reason. Yep, I think it's the curved They do look like Volkswagen Beetles. Yeah, I can give you the car comparison there. That would make sense. Ankylosaurus
0: episode 69, glyptodonts episode someday. Hmm. Ah. Well,
1: they both have very similar armored stiffened tails sometimes with swollen ends yes to act as a tip of a mace-like club knobs knobs so research has been done to look into how convergent are these because that's always one of the difficult things for looking into uh, fossil convergence is now we can't see how you're using it i can't watch you use it so it's hard for me to say that this is behaviorally or functionally convergent it may just be superficially Right. Convergent. Maybe you evolved the same kind of thing, but for completely different reasons. This is the research by Victoria Arbor and Lindsay Zano. Absolutely. Yeah. And basically what they did is they took a look at multiple of the tail clubs to try to look for specific similarities, see how many specific similarities there actually were, especially in the development of tail clubs, how they evolved in these groups. And they found that they are highly convergent. Uh, it seems about 80% of the traits of these tail clubs are convergent. Wow. So we're talking about a group of mammals. Mammals.
0: Armadillo, uh, closely related armadillo mammals and a group of dinosaurs. Yes. That have evolved astonishingly convergently. And once again a weird tool. Tail clubs. You don't just yeah. see those on every store shelf. These are among the only two groups of animals that have ever evolved tail clubs. And
1: so these tail clubs seem to be very similar and part of the reason for this conclusion is that they developed in the groups in very similar ways and that they started by stiffening the tip of the tail, that handle we talked about in our Ankylosaur episode, and then if they developed a knob, the knob developed secondary. So the tail clubbed turned into a club in the same kind of steps. Interesting. So parallel so evolution. So it would actually be parallel evolution in that regard, ah. which also suggests that they very likely did have similar uses because that means the same utility and pressures seem to have been useful and successful in the same order. Another one of those that we do have some of today, but not as much as there used to be, is snout horns. Oh, yeah. Horns on your nose has popped up multiple times. And now we really only have the rhinos as our example. And so like a rhino horn, you also have animals like the Ceratopsians, Triceratops, Dyracosaurus, all of the frilled horned dinosaurs. Many of them would have snout horns. Very similar, even though it's made out of different stuff. Yeah, I was going to say structurally, it's different.
0: Rhinos, it's keratin. So fingernails, hair, keratin. And in the dinosaurs, it's bone, yes, covered by a keratin sheath. Mm-hmm. So it's an
1: actual technical horn, but both similar shape, similar function, most likely. Yeah, but it goes even farther than that. There are multiple mammal groups that so heavily converge with rhinos that many people mistake them as prehistoric rhinos. Oh, brontotheres are one of the most often cited of these. These are Mammals in the order of Perseodactyla, and they're very rhino-like. They lived between 56 to 34 million years ago, up until the end of the Eocene. They look almost identical in skeletal shape to rhinos. And they're often reconstructed art-wise, very rhino-like with folded thick skin Mm -hmm. and tiny little ears. And little rhino lippy faces. If you
0: remember the movie Ice Age. Yes. The two, Carl and the other one. I don't yep. remember the name. The the two guys that were looking for the dandelion. Yeah, the ones uh, who Sid ruined the salad when he yes. scraped his feet through it. One of them was, a, was Cedric the Entertainer, I think, played oh, one yeah, of them. Yeah. I think it was. Yeah. That were like big rhino looking. Those, I believe, were either
1: Brontotheres or Uintotheres. Mm-hmm. Which is another group. Yep. That has gone very rhino <laughs> in their body shape. A dandelion? But neither of them are rhinos. The brontotheres are actually more closely related to horses than to rhinos. Oh, interesting. So this one is not like ridiculously different animals, but that nose horn has nothing to do with their cousin's nose horn. Right, right. So it's still convergent. Another one that is one of my favorites is the arsenotherium, which is actually more closely related to elephants and lived also about the same time but has these two big, thick horns off the nose. Yeah. Looks for all purposes like a really crazy, roided-out rhino, but it's actually a <laughs> elephant cousin. So it's not even in the same major group. So, yeah, being shaped like a rhino, or being shaped like a Triceratops more accurately... Yes. Uh, <laughs> is ...has been useful for many groups
0: over the ages. This also uh, brings to mind what I mentioned in my, the news this episode, Woolly mammoths and woolly rhinos. Yes. Both woolly, probably for the same reasons, mm-hmm.
1: two different groups of animals. Yes. So, yeah, that that similar survival technique is a really cool thing we see pop up. I
0: also just thought of another cool example and then realized you are almost definitely going to say it.
1: So, <laughs> you go ahead. So, the next category I wanted to talk about, because there's a couple of cool ones in here, is the aquatic. Secondarily, aquatic animals have huge convergences.
0: Yeah. Which
1: you've already mentioned a little bit, but we haven't mentioned the fossil ones that have done this.
0: I said in episode 51, when we talked about mosasaurs, mm-hmm. one of my favorite sentences to say, period, is that mosasaurs are a group of lizards, yep, convergently evolved with whales. Absolutely. I just that sentence is awesome.
1: And it's and it's absolutely true. We mentioned the fact that Mosasaurs have now been found to have fusiform, which means more rigid central bodies, and then a caudal fin, a tail fin, yep. like a shark yep. on the tail, which means when we used to think it swam like a snake, all wriggly, we now realize it actually probably swims much more like a shark, with a more rigid central body that flexes but then a tail that does most of the propulsion. Right. It's not undulating from head to tail. The body is fairly stable mm-hmm. and the tail moves back and forth. Which we see in sharks, but we also see that in other marine unrelated reptiles. The ichthyosaurs yeah. are the quintessential you know, example oh, yeah. for convergent marine reptiles. The name means fish lizard. Fish lizard. <laughs> so these are the typically long-snouted, big eyes marine reptiles that have a shark tail and a shark fin on their back and oh. shark fins <laughs> for arms and then little shark like fins for the legs and the reason i keep saying shark like is because they have become convergent with sharks the same way toothed whales like dolphins did and so that's always been one of my irksome things is people always go ichthyosaurs convergent with dolphins no they're not sharks were first they're both convergent with sharks dolphins
0: well it's like i always like when we name the dinosaurs Mm -hmm. like uh uh, the the ostrich mimic and the chicken mimic it's like well it's i picture the ostrich mimics
1: which are like the ornithomimids they're flocking this way yes Uh, yep i always picture them like holding their patent and be like oh it's, I came up with this still, years ago. No, those chickens are Gallimimus mimics. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you I'm, very much.
0: I'm the original. <laughs> now, Sukamimus, spot on. Yes. The crocodile mimic.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well,
0: crocodilian, <laughs> I suppose. Yeah.
1: And so you see this a lot with, with marine reptiles, that they have taken very shark-like forms and even very shark-like ways of swimming. And in truth... Fish-like, because sharks are fish, right? Right. And most fish swim this way as well. But a very fish-like body plan, streamlined. Their limbs have been shortened. There's basically no joint in them anymore. They've reduced that down. So now it's just this paddle. They've extended the phalanges, your finger bones, and increased them for most of the groups. Yeah. So there's more. You you only have three
0: bones in each of your non-thumb fingers. Yeah. That's for each of your knuckles and joints on the finger. And, but a lot of these marine animals, the ones with bones in their fins have
1: developed way more, which I just want you to picture that if a dolphin were to have a hand like us, its fingers would be long and rope-like because it would have so many joints (laughs) just to ruin dolphins a little bit (laughs) (laughs) as if they needed it. Yeah. And so all of these features that stiffened body propulsion tail and reduced limbs down to paddles, that's happened multiple times. Another group are the marine crocodiles, the meteorynchids uh, mm-hmm. that we've mentioned way, way back. in Episode our, 2. Yeah. All the way back. Which were marine crocs that also seem to have had a caudal fin-like tail mm-hmm. and flipper-like limbs. So that, if you want to be a big predator in the ocean, evidently that's the way to do it. But there's also other cool things that they've converged with. There's a plesiosaur that has been found, Mortenira which was a plesiosaur that had notably different teeth. So most plesiosaurs have sharp teeth that meet up with one another to grab fish. Uh, very obvious fish hunting teeth. This one had longer, more slender, delicate teeth that were also pointing the wrong direction. They weren't pointing back to hold you in my mouth. They were pointing out. And these did not meet tip to tip. They laid together almost. And what it looks like is it made a sieve. Oh, a filter. A filter! And from what they looked at, seems to be a filter-feeding plesiosaur, like crab-eating seals, that sieve krill through their crazy-shaped teeth by taking a gulp full of water and then just pushing the water out through their teeth. That reminds me of the news we talked about
0: last episode with the pterosaurs, who not only had mouth shapes similar to flamingos, but poop contents similar to flamingos.
1: It's a really cool thing that these environments seem to elicit very similar shapes from the animals who go to live in them. But one of my favorite just huge group of examples for fossil convergence are crocs. Oh, I figured. Yeah, remember? (laughs) uh, Like I said earlier, speaking of things we don't talk enough about. Episode two. (laughs) So it's been a while. Crocs have been around for quite a while. uh, And croc cousins. So the the earliest relatives of crocs show up like 200 million years ago. During that time, and even before it, there have been crocked-shaped animals that aren't crocs. Sometimes aren't even reptiles. And that is one of the most noted convergences with crocodilians out there and when i say croc shaped i mean modern croc shaped fossil crocs have been all sorts of shapes right right but But your alligator crocodile that
0: long flat snout
1: mm -hmm. and that
0: long kind
1: of flattish lizard shaped body Mm -hmm. with the little arms and then a powerful tail for swimming that shape shows up multiple times in completely unrelated groups including reptiles uh the probably the most famous of them are the phytosaurs yep which are cousins cousins of the archosaurs but not archosaurs not crocodilomorphs. these were reptiles during the triassic they look for all intensive purposes like some kind of croc except the nose isn't at the tip of the snout it's right in front of the eyes which is awesome but they do have very similar brains They've done CT scans of the skull, and they found (laughs) that phytosaurs have a very indicative brain shape that's very unique to phytosaurs. It has a long frontal area for uh, the, the olfactory lobe, the smelling part of the brain. But modern crocs and gators have a similar overall shape. Wow. Yeah. So they are probably the triassics version of a crocodile and other evidence has suggested that yeah they were probably living a very similar life That's it's a good body shape to have if you're sitting on the edge of the water mm-hmm. trying to grab stuff absolutely and being sneaky about it but even before that in the permian there were giant amphibians doing the same thing even before the reptiles came in and wrecked the place <laughs> <laughs> they wrecked the place yes <laughs> the tinosaurus <laughs> yes Unfortunately, <laughs> the Timnospondyles are a famous group of often very big amphibians. Mm-hmm. Like we're talking over like, 10 feet sometimes. Gator size. Yes. Yeah. And many of them were gator shaped. Uh, the One of the ones that was cited was uh, Prinosuchus. And Suchus means croc. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which had a long, slender snout, a big, powerful, flattened tail, flattened, but thick body with little short legs. It's a it's a it's it, a croc. Yeah, it's a scaleless croc.
0: <laughs> so, in that sense, will by your own logic, <laughs> they are not croc uh, mimics. They're not convergent with crocs. Crocs are convergent with temnospondyls. It's true. And then, actually, even then, if you look at like Tiktolic, I was about to say, yeah, the one of the earliest transitional fish moving mm-hmm. onto land. It has a very croc-shaped
1: body. It does eyes and (laughs) nose on the top of its skull. Yeah, big, broad snout. Yeah, so, yeah, it's probably more correct to say these are all or uh, tectolic mimics. And I'm sure there are fish. Oh, yeah. Like, true fish that we could find
0: that do the same thing. But, like, in the sand at the bottom of the the ocean.
1: But you also get other reptiles. The the champsasauruses were very crocodilian-looking reptiles during the Cretaceous that had a very gharial like very thin snout very aquatic body most were just under 10 foot you know around or just above 10 foot maybe uh the eye position was different their eyes were actually much more forward on the skull so it wasn't within the back of the skull there was the big thick back of the skull most likely for muscle and then eyes so like the placement of stuff is usually different but then one of my favorites like you were saying with mosasaurus being convergent being the reptile version of a whale Ambulocetus. yeah the walking whale episode 41 is a mammal's answer to the crocodile yes it's
0: a mammalian croc
1: which is so <laughs> cool this was one of the early whales and is often cited as like that perfect mid between land and ocean mm-hmm. and it had a long skull with sharp teeth powerful jaws Shortened legs, long body. And now, were any of these ambushing stuff at the edge of the water? Maybe not. Mm -hmm. These bodies work perfectly well for hunting in the water. Most of a crocodile or alligator's food is still fish. Even though we always talk about them being ambush predators, they still are mostly eating fish because that's what mostly is there. But they absolutely could have been. Oh, yeah. Uh, Walking with Prehistoric Beasts shows Ambulacitas trying to ambush stuff. Well, and
0: that's something I wanted to mention is that a lot of the time we're using convergent features to infer convergent behaviors. Yes, we are. So the whole reason you always see documentaries show the pachycephalosaur dinosaurs, the ones with the domed heads, cracking heads together, is because it looks a lot like what goats and rams have. And we're saying, oh, that may have evolved for the same reason. We're inferring convergence mm-hmm. to
1: make, uh, in, uh, you know, to try to understand their ancient behaviors. But there are also examples of animals where we know they're doing a similar thing and have resulted in similar shapes. Crocs and toothed whales have very similar shaped faces. Long, thin snout and sharp pointed teeth for grabbing fish. Uh, One example that that one research found was that the gharial, which is the really thin, the Indian gharial, really thin snouted crocodilian and the freshwater dolphins The river dolphins have skulls that are really similar morphologically, so in their shape. And it's likely due to the, not the river system, but their fact that they're both fish specialists. And those thin snouts let you grab stuff. And we've seen those thin snouts pop up all throughout the fossil record. Also, we mentioned that in episode 42, Mm -hmm. because spinosaurs had that same sort of shape. And so <laughs> you can you can really see some cool patterns. But probably my favorite of these examples, just because it's weird and it's going in a different direction, is very ancient croc cousin, a paracrocodilomorph. So we're not even in crocodilomorph yet. Is Ephigia. And Ephigia was a about two hundred and ten million year old croc cousin that looked like a dinosaur. Oh yeah! This one was shaped like what we expect a dinosaur to be shaped like. It's about six feet long, stood on hind legs, tail was erect off the ground, tiny front arms, long neck, large eyes, toothless snout, oh. with what with what seems to be a beak-like structure on it. Huh! This was a croc, a para-crocodilomorpha that looked like an ostrich mimic like an ornithomimus uh,
0: so it was a it was a bird mimic mimic crocodile <laughs> yeah. Mi- relative <laughs> yeah so
1: like we were saying earlier in truth ornithomimus is an ephigia yes. mimic and ostriches <laughs> are also and so this is a this is a croc cousin that when they first pulled it out thought it was a dinosaur until they looked at the the hips and the ankles which is how you tell the right. two sides of Archosaur apart. Big clues. Yep, that that's the key feature. And these were definitely croc ankles. Crankles. Crankles. <laughs> so, yeah. You
0: did not mention the group that I thought you were going to mention. Go ahead. So, I'll, real briefly, I'll make a mention of it here. It's a whole other episode topic. Saber teeth. Oh, good point. Good point. Have shown up. not And not even just like... Yes, there are those saber-toothed deer and saber-toothed salmon yeah. and stuff, but a cat-shaped saber-toothed animal yeah. has appeared at least three or four times. Yeah. Once in marsupials. Yes! <laughs> That's my favorite one. <laughs> like, so the classic saber-toothed cat, that same body plan and the saber teeth showed up in not cats and showed up in not
1: even placental mammals. Yes! It's fantastic. And the reason that one is also so interesting to me is we still are debating what, you know, usually Smile It On, was using its Saber Teeth for. But yet, not only was whatever <laughs> they were using it for useful for them to survive, but it was super useful for a lot of other groups. Apparently it's a good strategy. Like, that raises the question, why aren't we seeing that today? What have we done? Yeah, what's changed <laughs> and why don't we see Saber Teeth? So you get some really weird, like the tail clubs and like the saber teeth, things that have were convergent and then now are, at least in our very brief time on right, the planet, for the time being, <laughs> are gone. And that's always very interesting to me of why why were they so useful that multiple species converged on it? And if it is so useful, why aren't we seeing it today? Or is it just a matter of time until another tail clubbed animal shows up? Right, right. But that bit of confusion can actually lead problems we mentioned earlier that convergent evolution is not always clear it's sometimes hard to tell if you're looking at convergent evolution are you looking at homologous structures and you just haven't found the common ancestor yet uh that's happened lots with things where it's like wow lots of animals had these oh nope never mind all the same group but it's also happened the other way where we've gone wow look at this group they're super diverse and then realize no they're all different animals they looked the same due to convergence it can really mess up taxonomy if you're not careful that was something Linnaeus you know ran into rampantly when he first started trying to group things is he grouped them by similar features but because of that lots of things got grouped together that had nothing to do with one another they just lived the same way well it's like
0: why there's you know people get confused about dolphins and whales
1: not being fish. Yes, exactly. Because they sure look like fish. They're doing a real good impression. The example the article I found, gave, which I really liked, is it's this, you know, this is why a monkey and a dog are not more closely related to each other because they both have fur and we don't. Yes. (laughs) But it's stuff like that. If you were to put us all next to each other and an alien were to look at it, it'd be really to go, alright, furry, not furry. Put that one with the amphibians you know I mean we have hair but you get the it can really mess those things up it can also metal up certain studies there are certain techniques you can use to make phylogenetic reconstruction so the trees of the relations and an ancestral state reconstruction is a very common one this is a tool that extrapolates so it using what we have makes a model going back Toward what the ans- the the ancestral characters were likely, which can lead us to linking common ancestors.
0: Right. So you're basically saying, here are the few species we know about, mm-hmm. either living or extinct. Based on what features they share, let's compute what their
1: common ancestor would have looked like. Exactly. So you can start to shape a common ancestor. But, without taking any extra steps, we do have those extra steps, but... If you just do straight uh, reconstruction with this method, it is a method that assumes convergence hasn't happened, which means if it did happen and you haven't noticed it or it hasn't been caught for some reason by adding in other steps, which there are ways to try to catch this, but without that, your reconstruction may make an ancestor that doesn't match at all what it actually is because you're being shown features that don't actually have anything to do with one another. Right,
0: you're trying to determine the ancestor of bats and birds... Yeah. ...not realizing that
1: they evolved those similar features separately. So, convergent evolution can actually mess things up. One modern example, which I mentioned once again in episode two, is the Indian gharial and the false gharial, which skeletally look very different in their shape of their skull, but their snout is very similar. But genetically seem to be very similar so like you have this thing where it's hard to confirm how much is due to their relation to one another and how much d- is due to convergence and this actually is a common this is a common ailment of figuring out the order of slender snout crocs throughout <laughs> history is slender snout longirostrine is what that's called has popped up all over the place skinny snout for catching things in the water that pops up just constantly just within the group of crocodilians. So who's related to who or did you just do that by yourself is hard to say a lot of the time. And so yeah, convergence can really throw a a wrench in some studies. It also can bring up some interesting and sometimes difficult questions. One question that often comes up with convergent evolution is since it is so common, does this not suggest or potentially suggest that there are only so many right answers for a successful survival uh solution yeah. that evolution only has so many ways of doing something this makes me think
0: of the fish shape yes the fact that almost everything mm-hmm. that has evolved to live a fully aquatic lifestyle has taken on the shape of a fish and the main exceptions that i can think of are the ones that before they became fully aquatic Did something real weird.
1: Yeah, that were completely the wrong shape.
0: Like turtles. Yes. Like, yes, you are not a fish shape because you have your rib cage on the outside. Yeah, because your spine doesn't move anymore. Yeah, dingus. (laughs) Or like snakes. Aquatic snakes. It's like, well, okay, yeah, you don't have any limbs. Now, in that case, you
1: look like an eel. Yes, you do. Which is still a fish. Yep. (laughs) And so that question pops up a lot. And there seems to be people on both sides of it, and there have been there's been research looking into trying to quantify, you know, does it actually seem like there is a similar process at work each time? Or is it just that if you roll a million dice, you're gonna get a whole bunch of the same numbers because the odds the say so of large numbers. Exactly. That seems to be where the research is suggesting is that no, you can get convergence. Just with the randomness of natural selection pressures and evolutionary process. But the question still hangs in the air a lot of the time. And I've seen quotes. There's a quote from Brochu on the one of the Croc papers that said, there are only so many ways to do this well. And so it pops up all the time. It makes me think back to, I saw a study
0: many years ago about birds dropping seashells. And it was a study that said... So If you are a bird, a shorebird, that picks up a a shell, an oyster or something, and a lot of birds will pick up shells and drop them from the air to try to crack them open. And the study was saying, in theory, there should be a perfect height. Yes. Because if you don't fly up high enough, the shell won't break when you drop it, and you've wasted a trip. But if you're flying up higher than you need to, you're going to break the shell, but you're also... Using more energy, yeah, it's wasting a little bit. Take you longer to get down to it, and so they did the math, and they were like, "Oh, okay. Well, the math says the perfect height is I forget it was like seven meters or something mm-hmm, like that." Mm-hmm. And then they observed the birds and found that the birds were very consistently dropping the shells at around that height. That just selection head. In that case, there is a mathematical best way to do it, and so given the generations natural selection had converged on it. And it makes me think, I wonder how many instances it's like that. Yes. Where, yes, there are many ways to live in the ocean, but the number, the the best way to do it is to be shaped like a fish, or at least the best way to do it. If your body is full of bones and organs. Yeah. Is to be shaped like a fish. So with, with a handful of exceptions, the numbers will always bring you that direction. As opposed to other things like the tail weaponry mm-hmm. where this has evolved like what a half dozen times yeah, exactly. ever and it just happens to maybe be the same thing.
1: Yeah and I, I think that does make a lot of sense that it may not necessarily be limits on the uh, uh, capabilities of evolution if that's even a thing you can say that evolution has capabilities but limitations on evolution and it's the limits of obeying the
0: laws of physics and i would also say there are definitely some things that you can't do with the body
1: shape you're given like absolutely we
0: have bones that means there are certain things you
1: can't do yeah it would you would have to unevolve those bones you evolve away from bones first right 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 to do some of those other options no animal
0: has re-evolved gills although as we saw in the (laughs) news some have come have done very Mm -hmm. similar things yeah but like that's We, by the very way we are made up and the very chemicals that create our bodies,
1: are limited in certain ways. And I think once then, it's a a cost-benefit. It's not so much that, no, it's not impossible for a mammal to become a boneless, octopus-like creature, but that's a lot of adaptation for something you can achieve with far simpler changes.
0: And it's something that the pathway you'd have to take evolutionarily to get there, because every step has to be Beneficial, functional. yes. And it's just
1: her extremely unlikely to happen. Yes. So yeah, convergent evolution. Weird concept, weird outcomes, but super cool and ridiculously diverse. And it's a fun pattern to be aware
0: of because once you have it in your mind, yep. it's everywhere. Yep so as we said do you have a favorite example of convergent
1: evolution please let us know
0: let us know let's start a list we'll start a, a conversation
1: uh in in our social medias absolutely now this would typically be where we would end the episode with sure our will. signature ending catchphrase <laughs> uh, but before that we mentioned our patreon at the beginning And we casually mentioned that one of the things you can do at certain levels is send us questions that we will answer right here on the podcast. Right here, live. For us right now. For us. It's live for us. Yes. We are alive. (laughs) And we have a patron question here from Lydia. What's up, Lydia? Who asks, Hi, guys. Hi, Lydia. Hi. I have another speculative brain teaser for you. Oh, fun. How might human evolution have looked if we had chemosensors, taste receptors, on our hands and or feet. Huh. Yeah. Well, you're the spec evolution. Oh, yeah. Person. <laughs> so to give everyone a picture of, of what Lydia is talking about, the chemo on the hand and feet, lots of organisms have that. Uh, octopus have taste buds on their suction cups. Mm -hmm. You know, and lots of things like uh, sea stars taste and smell with their tube feet and flies and lots of insects have taste sensors on their feet. So when they land on something, they go, oh, I've landed on food. Yes. Would you say it's convergent? Huh? I probably. Yeah, Yeah. those would definitely be (laughs) (laughs) with that many different versions of it. And if we had them, if we had them on our hands, I feel like our foraging phase would have been vastly different as humans. Because, like, as humans, our sense of smell and taste is...
0: uh, It's not super great. It's not great. It's nothing impressive.
1: I actually don't know how our taste compares to everything else, but, like, our smell definitely is subpar. But if we had chemical receptors on our hands, that means when you're foraging, you could just touch things. Stick your hand into the bushes. Without having to stick it in your mouth. So now you're not you know, licking everything in the forest, <laughs> you're just going, up, oh, fruit, not fruit, not fruit, that's poop, and <laughs> just, and you would just be analyzing, so that's, you wouldn't have tongues on your hands, your hands would just now have touch and taste, which means you could analyze something, and I would know how my cup felt, and also what it tastes like without putting it in my mouth.
0: I wonder how that would affect a group of animals that are climbers. yeah. Like, is that good because you're moving with your hands like the fly, so anytime you're on a substrate, you know a bunch about it? Or is it you're climbing and your hands are in
1: danger all the time? I wonder if we would have specialized uh, chemoreceptors because of that. For, like, climbing, would our tastes only be on the pinky?
0: I would, I love, because you're doing, you can't see this, <laughs> Yes, but Will's doing it. <laughs> I love the notion of having pinky out while you're yes, climbing. You're there. And then just, <laughs> boop, boop, a little taste, little taste. Boop,
1: of the, I was gonna say, I wonder what if we had it on the back of the fingers. Yeah, if we had it on the back of the hand, and then it'd be like when you, you know, you're, if there's a fire alarm, you're supposed yes, to test the right? door on the, the back of the back hand. hand. It'd be like yeah. <laughs> you, you'd put it and go, ooh, ah, taste that, yeah. taste that, uh, mm, spicy, sour, sour, Very spicy. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's. I w- I, w- I bet our hands would have to be structured differently because we, unlike a lot of, the, well, I mean, octopus do, but they're crazy, right, right, Uh but like. Uh, Well, I mean, I guess that is a good point. Octopuses have it on the part they use to climb around. Yeah. So as long as we're not like damaging it when we're climbing, it just means you would know what your tree tastes like. I wonder if we would even need to change very much. Yeah. Like it feels like
0: we're already touching everything with our hands. That seems pretty. I, I suspect
1: that gloves would be a lot less popular. Gloves would probably be a lot less popular. I also wonder how it would affect our cuisine. Because we're the whole experience would have to be tailored to hand tastes. And I wonder I can't decide whether it would dull our search for exotic tastes or increase it because if I'm tasting stuff with my hands all day, there has to be some numbness there almost. Because like like you don't feel you wearing your shirt right now, most of us. Like your body, after a stimulus is there for a certain amount of time, your brain goes all right, I'm going to turn that off for the most part, or otherwise it will literally drive me insane to keep track of every single fold of the shirt on your body because that's too much information and I need to hear what's going on. So I wonder if it would be like half the time when I put my hand on the table, I don't even notice the taste of the table because it's it's not an important taste. So would food have to be intense? Yeah, would it have to be more noticeable or would... The taste in your mouth be different than the
0: taste in your hands. Well, I have my 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 the thing I was wondering is would we even use our tongues anymore? Yeah. For the now, we use our tongues for talking. We do, and for manipulating the food as we chew it. But if they're not needed for chemosensation, could they take on a shape that maybe is even more versatile for mm-hmm. talking or for food manipulation? Yeah, if they're not having to give us chemical information. Uh, could they evolve into snake tongues so that we could use them to smell? Because yeah. our sense of smell's not great. Yeah, that would be cool. One one might hope. Yes. <laughs> also if, if we're lucky. As I'm sitting here in this hot room yeah. and, and getting kind of sweaty, it occurs to me that I you probably want to keep your hands off of your body a lot more. Oh yeah. Like you know when you're like out and it's really hot and like your neck's all sweaty and you kinda rub it. That would be gross.
1: Yep. Well, and, and person-to-person <laughs> contact would be very interesting. Yeah, like a handshake would be very intimate. But if we did replace... Oh, you were eating a burger. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah. Ooh. laughs> Where would you get that? that...
0: Yeah, all right. Now we're like daredevil. <laughs>
1: yes, exactly. We just... It is a world on fire. Uh, if we did replace the tongue, if the tongue didn't become the taster anymore, finger food would be oh, yeah. much more popular. It would all be things you eat with your hand because otherwise i don't know what i'm putting on my body. Yeah. <laughs> like, if that would be mm. like if you that would be like getting an iv of nutrients. You don't taste it, you just get it. Right. If your tongue's not doing the tasting and you're just eating stuff with a fork, you'd be like, "I sure hope this tastes good." Yeah. You so know? yeah, no, it would be eating with you your it nuts. would be all chicken fingers and donuts and uh, healthy versions of that. Well, that's fun. That would be very interesting. That's a uh, good question, Lydia.
0: We could go forever, but we should stop. Yes. Before now, this became a lot of discussion about
1: speculative cultural evolution, which mm-hmm. is super fun. Yeah, that's it's if we as you know, because then it would also suggest that primates very likely, yeah, had and that's why I was saying if it was just on one finger, I was picturing something like an like eye eye reaching where, into the. Well, it'd be like antenna hole. as a finger that you literally are brushing against stuff and going oh okay oh okay okay yeah yeah uh, these big long antenna, big, big long uh 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 streamers yeah they're <laughs> uh, off your uh, like fingers dowsing rods yeah exactly <laughs> that you're just for that you're just brushing along stuff as you're eating it or as you're like moving around and you're just touching stuff with it all the time Ooh. yeah i like it be so creepy it's like cockroach it people sense. but your antennae are on your hands i love it <laughs>
0: good question Lydia. great
1: question absolutely If you'd like to ask questions to have, to force us to answer on the podcast, (laughs) sign up, take a look at our Patreon, sign up, and we'll be happy to have you, but happy to have your questions. Absolutely. But with this, we're going to wrap up episode 70. Thank you so much for listening. Keep an eye out for the next episode in a fortnight. Indeed. Let us know anything you want to hear with all the usual ways of contacting us. Keep an eye out for the blog post. Yep. Pictures and
0: links. Don't forget that October will be
1: filled with spookulative evolution. So first Saturday, check your app and download your first spooky for 2019. It's going to be good. And sign out for Ace. Sign out for Hey.
0: (laughs) Did you convergently come up with that? I doubt it. That's the next episode about biomimicry. Yes.
1: (laughs) about kleptoparasitism.
0: (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.